Well, we come to another session in this series on the love of Christ this afternoon. And as I gave you a preview last night, let me reiterate this afternoon that I believe extremely in the importance of experiential love. And so today we want to talk about this practical aspect of love once again. But I want to underscore the fact that it begins with an understanding theologically of the essence of God's love, and that is it all begins with Christ's finished work on Calvary. But God commended His love toward us, showcased that love toward us, in that while we were in the very act of sinning, Christ died for us. It's hard to imagine that Christ would have such mercy on us as worms. Those that by His grace He has plucked from the dunghill and He has made Himself, or at least has purposed to make Himself strong through as we live out our lives to the praise of His glory. So this afternoon we want to look at something that I pray would be a great encouragement to your heart, certainly a bomb, a sustaining uh, power that would enable you as I trust in these days and see that it's enabling me, and that is the inseparability of the love of Christ. If you would, take your Bibles and look with me in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, and I'd like to read uh, at the end of the chapter, beginning in verse 31. I'll give you a heads up this afternoon. I use uh, uh, different versions uh, in my notes, in my preaching. I'm not exclusively just a one-version man, but primarily it will be the old King James, the new King James, the NASB, and the ESV. And it's not to confuse people, it's not to throw them off, but rather I'll use that portion of Scripture that I believe affords us the greatest clarity in our understanding of the Word of God. So if you would, just, just bear with me, because oftentimes I'll shift from one thing to the other. If you would, follow with me, beginning in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, Father, once again this afternoon, we pray that you would give us a, an understanding of not only the beauty of the love of God as embodied in the very gospel of the Lord Jesus, but also that you would encourage us through the effectual working of your Spirit to understand that this is a love, Lord, that is not confined to our intellectualism. It is something, Lord, that moves us. As Paul says, the love of Christ constrains. And it's not just for gospel enterprise, but in all of life, whether it's for our mortification, our mission, our marriage, or whatever, Lord, we thank You today that the love of Christ constrains. Oh, Father, would You be gracious to come and draw near this afternoon 
And as we prayed, we continue to pray, Lord, that you would make this a time of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. Help your people, Lord. Thank you that you put in the pastor's heart, Lord, this great theme. Where there's nothing, Lord, I believe will buoy us, buoy us up in these days as beleaguered saints than the love of Christ. So would you by your Spirit, Father, through your Son, glorify yourself, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now it's interesting, from the text here, you find that a proper response to all trials that you and I go through is given us in the principle of the love of God. And brothers and sisters, in the sermon this afternoon, what we want to do is we want to underscore how the Lord comforts, His love comforts us in crisis. Yea, even in crisis of faith, He comes and He manifests His love to us. And He affirms His own affection toward us and drives us forth in spite of adverse circumstances. The backdrop of the passage you find here is that the saints in Rome once again were under some measure of persecution. As we saw last night, Nero had not come to the throne as of yet. But the persecution was very intense. And what happened here is they began to question whether or not God was for them. I agree with Martin Lloyd-Jones. I believe that the theme of Romans chapter 8 is assurance of salvation. And here are these people in their mind. They are very fearful because they're wondering... Is God really for us? And even some were thinking, do we even belong to Him? Do we even know the saving work of Christ? Has God really made Himself real to us? Because after all, it's hard for us to equate all the aggression and the discomfort that we're experiencing with the love and the affection of God. And so the Apostle Paul begins his argument, you remember in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah! There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. And he builds upon that reality, that principle. He assures them that God has not abandoned His people. And from this opening exhortation, you find that Paul proceeds to provide reasons as to why God is for them. It's like a missionary in Hungary told me last week, he said, Brother Don, I'm preaching through Romans chapter 8. And to me, if you're looking for a title, it would be, God is for us. I think that's a very worthy title from the content here. I could also use the title of Persuaded by Love. But we've chosen the title of the inseparability of the love of Christ for this afternoon. Paul gives, like a loving, battering ram, one argument after another why we are accepted in Christ. God accepts us in Christ and He is for us. For you find in verse 2, he tells us why they are no longer under condemnation. For the law or the dynamic of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made us free from this law of sin and death. And that is manifested outwardly by the fact that we walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. As he goes on to say here in this passage of scripture. Now he continues to put his arguments before us. And you find the dynamic of the life of the Spirit is witnessed in four evidences of spiritual adoption. This is rich, brethren. Listen. It is not mine. It is His. It is His inspiration that will comfort us. Listen. He gives these four marks of adoption. They are the leading of us to mortify our sin. There as he says that we are the children of God by virtue of the fact that this Spirit that indwells us, enables us, constrains us to mortify sin. He goes on to say in verse 15 that the Spirit of God gives a desire to pray. 
This spirit that cries, Abba, Father, is continued by our desire as the people of God to dialogue with our Heavenly Father. And then he also talks about the Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And by the way, as many of us are so inclined to the experiential, this is not speaking so much of the experiential as it is something very objective and tangible and seen in the life of the Christian. You see, the word witnesses there means that he provides many tangible proofs of our adoption. Namely, the birthmarks of 1 John. We love the brethren. We love righteousness. We love the truth. We obey His commandments. We overcome the world. He is witnessing, agreeing with our spirit that we are a child of God by providing these things in our life. I love the words of Oswald Chambers who said the great miracle of conversion is not the changes that other people see in you, but the changes that you witness in yourself. Now you look at your life and be honest for a moment. Do you see things in your life that could only be explained in terms of the supernatural activity of God? You point to these things you say, only God could have altered that. Only God could have transformed that area in my life. Only God could have made me think differently in this particular area. Only God could have by virtue of that supernatural work. But also he mentions a fourth mark of adoption, and that is, he says in verse 23, and the Spirit causing, causes an inward groaning as those people, new create, cre- creatures that find themselves out of their element. They look around them. I'm not of this world. I cannot feel at home in this world. And even though you think of Lot, who Peter calls a righteous man, the Bible tells us that his soul was vexed daily by the unlawful deeds of the Sodomites. These things trouble a true child of God. So I ask you a question just in passing. Because we want this once again to be an experiential conference. I, I really have an aversion to filling your heads full of a bunch of theological information, friend. Sometimes people wax eloquently and they tell me, so it took me eight years to get through Hebrews, or it took me 16 years to get through Romans, and I'm saying, so what? Your church is as dead as four o'clock. I want this to make your heart dance. So I ask you this question today. Do you see these marks in your own life? Are you killing sin? Is your life characterized by prayer? Can you see the birthmarks of regeneration? Birthmarks such as the things I just mentioned a moment ago. And do you grieve over the corruption of this world as one who finds himself out of his elements? These are the evidence of the Spirit. And it's interesting, Paul gives them these things to assure them that God is for them. To assure them of their Life in Christ. Now, we continue, and as you move to the chapter, you see Paul's reasoning for greater assurance. He assures of the Spirit's intercession within them according to the will of God. The Spirit groaning within, making intercession with groanings which cannot be uttered. And then he sets forth the five golden links of salvation. You remember there that rich passage where he talks about foreknowledge and predestination and calling and justification and glorification. You see, Paul confirms, brothers and sisters, these unseen realities with the overarching promises, promise, if God is for us, who can be against us? Should he say anything more? Should the apostle go on? Well, apparently the Holy Spirit thought so. For He continues to unfold before us other arguments that prove our sonship and prove that God is standing with us in trial. Listen carefully. In addition to these promises, the Apostle ends the chapter by magnifying the love of Christ. Magnifying the love of Christ. To reassure 
them of God's faithfulness. Listen, He speaks of its essence, effect, and efficiency. The essence, the heart of the love of God is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He said, it is Christ who died, yea, rather, that has risen again. Its effect is that we're more than conquerors through Him that loved us. And its efficiency is seen in the words that nothing, absolutely nothing, shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now listen, it gets better. Paul's closing argument for assurance is set forth in verses 35-39. through His emphasis is on the love of God as displayed in the finished work of Christ. Now don't miss this, listen. You will remember that we looked at how there are problems that plague our life as Christians last night. Might be confined to the domestic realm. It may be the workplace. It may be just a sense of war. Listen, if you want to see your faith increased, if you want to have a real hold on the promises of God, don't watch the news networks. Don't consistently feed off those guys what they're saying. Much of that is fake news anyway. I had to go to our Ukrainian missionaries to get the real scoop of what God was doing in Eastern Europe. Don't listen to Fox News. I'm not saying that it doesn't have some redeemable value, friend. I'm not saying it could not be helpful in some cases. But listen, don't feed off that and believe everything that you hear. Paul referred to them, these testings, as sufferings or tribulations in Romans 5. And the word there denotes hardships, as we said last night, in general. Whatever the difficulty may be. And listen, either you just come to a crisis, or you're on the threshold of a crisis, or you're in the midst of one presently. But Jesus said, offense is going to come. And Job said, as the sparks fly upward, man is few days and full of troubles. And the Bible promises that all of God's elect will enter the kingdom of God by way of tribulation. So cheer up. It's going to get a whole lot worse. That's reality. But there's joy in the midst of reality. We were talking to a... Well, my wife was, and then she sent a phone message last week. A dear, precious sister whose husband is a police officer in Poland. He's also a part-time missionary with Heart Cry Missionary Society. And this sister, I'm telling you, full of reality, full of joy. But she said she just had a swoon in her spiritual life. She was feeling greatly distressed. And God was teaching her of the depth of her corruption, her sinfulness through her children. She's got a six-year-old, a four-year-old, and a little toddler. And God's teaching her about her sinfulness to her children. Can anybody identify? I can identify as a grandparent now. I went through that when I was a parent. But anyway, she said, Sister Cindy, I had to go back to justification. And here's what she said. Knowing that Christ loved was fixed on me. I knew that that love did not ebb and flow. That He infinitely loved me and there was no abate of that love in my life. And therefore, this was the very thing that buoyed me up and sustained me in my life presently. That's what Paul's talking about. This is the work of Christ. It has such power. Now, I remind you what I said last night, friend. Listen, never assume that because you've got an understanding, a basic understanding of the gospel, that that's all there is to attain. A lot of people think, man, I know Jesus died, He was buried, and He rose again. And what they do is they close the gospel book and they shelve it. But it's in exploring, exploring in depth these themes of the gospel. 
imputed righteousness, expiation, propitiation, reconciliation, and the love of Christ that more and more we find ourselves sustained by an invisible hand that is not our own and that is manifested through the love of Jesus for His people. It is not just sufficient the Gospel is to save us from our sin, but to sustain us in sorrow. So with that said this afternoon, let me give you three things to think about. First of all, Consider with me the invincibility of God's love. Look back in Romans 8, verses uh, 35, verse 35 through 36. He says, there it is in the midst of this passage, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation... He's not speaking from a classroom. He's not speaking as a doctor of academics. He's speaking from experience. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. This is the promise of God, brethren. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. You will notice that nothing is left unsaid in verses 32 through 34, the preceding verses. In sounding a sure sound of hope, this is what his intentions are. The truth in this passage, brothers and sisters, is he shouts to the validity of the saving work of Christ. You see, the election, justification, with the death, resurrection, and intercession of the Savior showcase the love of God as displayed in Christ's propitious work. Christ has thoroughly averted the wrath of God that was against us once and forever. What is wrath? The violent passion of the Almighty was against us by virtue of a curse that we had incurred in that he that sins against God, breaking the law of God, cursed be he who does such. But yet Christ has thoroughly satisfied that curse that was against us, that wrath that was against us, because he became a curse for us. Let it sink down deep into your hearing. Deep. It has a way of animating the heart. Don't be content with academics, friends. Think about it for a moment. In love, He predestinated us according to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Through love, God justified us by extending His love toward us that while we were in the very act of sinning, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. His love was revealed in His willingness to ordain Christ's death and resurrection. In 1 John chapter 4 and verse 19, you find those beautiful words. In this love... This love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And then think about this. In His priestly office as Savior, He sits at the right hand of God and demonstrates continually His love for us in heaven by interceding at the Father's throne. You see, friend, understand that from predestination to glorification, there is no abate of divine love. That would make a Presbyterian shout. It it should anyway, shouldn't it? This makes my heart warm. God's wrath was averted when Christ became a, think about this, a bloody pacifier. A bloody pacifier to appease the wrath of God that was against us. And it's interesting that he seeks to lift the head of the oppressed, those that are being oppressed there in Rome in this context, with four things that he gives in the context of what we just read. Listen to these. First of all, 
how will he not also with him, this Savior, this Redeemer that has done so much on our behalf, how shall he not much more graciously give us all things? And what does this mean? If God has given his very best, will he not continue to display his kindness? I mean, everything in our life, friend, is a token, is an overture of God's love. Think about this. He looks in the faces of the disciples there in Luke chapter 12, and he says, Fear not, little flock. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Let that absorb into your mind, into your heart. He's not come to take opposition against you and I. Take heed, little flock. Don't be fearful. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Mark Lord Jones said, The argument is that if Christ did that for us while we were sinners and enemies and blasphemers and opponents and aliens, how much more will He now by His life continue to save us until finally we are glorified? It is not based upon our performance. As I mentioned last night, not performance but propitiation that wins the day. And wins eternity. Secondly, he asks the question, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's like Paul saying, Demons, evil angels, adversaries to the truth, go in and make my day. Ask the question all you like. While you entertain the prospects of that I might be undone. But nothing shall undo us from the love of God. You see, every charge, every accusation, every allegation that men and devils bring against us to undermine our hope in Christ, listen, will never rival the fact that we have been chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. Another thing Paul says, we're not to reduce it to something meager here. He goes on to say, It is God who justifies. And you think about it, friend. I agree with Piper who said God is the gospel. From beginning to end, God took the initiative. And this salvation will be culminated for His glory. It's like Tozer said. God wrapped Himself in human flesh born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died a horrific death, was raised the third day, and ascended into heaven and sat down on the right hand of the throne of God to make worshipers out of rebels. That's us, friend. That should excite us. What better defense can the law-breaking offender who has truly believed have than God Himself. God is the one that is the Savior in Christ. And then he asked another question, who shall condemn? You see, this is the idea behind his question, who shall condemn? Not a finger can be pointed at the person who has put their trust in Jesus Christ. You have besetting sin? You beat yourself up every time you commit sin? Every time you grieve the heart of God, your conscience is scourged by this unsettling feeling that you've not met God's approval. Listen, friend, your acceptance before God is not based once again on what you do, but what Christ has done. Who is to condemn is fruitless, the question. No shadow can be cast upon His chosen people. They are sealed until the day of redemption. Brothers and sisters, listen, your assurance is not in your performance, but in what Christ has accomplished there in His death on Calvary and His subsequent resurrection. So listen to this. From the vantage point of the love of Christ that was put on display in the Gospel, 
Paul assures the saints at Rome that their spiritual well-being was invincible against anything or anyone that would attempt to imperil their lives. Rome is no threat. Their tyrannical leadership is no threat. Nothing, nothing can rival the invincibility of Christ's love. I ran across an illustration about how that over a hundred years ago, uh, the affluent in Germany had a foolish notion that if they bathed in pools, pools that were laden with steel in Germany, if they bathed in those pools, it would make them invincible against the rays of the sun. And I got to thinking about it. Every man and woman who is a child of God that will learn by faith to bathe in the pool that nothing shall thwart the purpose of God in their life by virtue of the love of Christ will be invincible indeed. The evil one cannot touch you. He may harass, he may oppress, but he cannot touch you. Consider with me a second thing very quickly. And that is the immensity of God's love. The immensity of God's love. It's found in Romans 8, verse 37. Once again, the verse there, or the phrase, right in the heart of it, is more on the love of God. In all these things we are made more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Now think quickly. Comfort is attained for all who lay hold by faith on God's love in the finished work of Jesus. And that love, brothers and sisters, that love has the power to make us more than conquerors. Think about it. Paul's assertion here is quite amazing considering he has challenged every opponent with the inquiry of who shall separate us from the love of Christ. Watch this now. How could Paul make such a strong statement after enduring all the privations and persecutions that he did? The man has a life's message in persecution, how to weather the storms. But not just how to weather them, how to rejoice in them. How can he do such a thing? You see, we see the conviction of His testimony in the statement, through Him who loved us. I know most of y'all have already seen this, but it was pointed out to me recently as I was reading Lloyd-Jones. You'll notice the word love is in the past tense. It's not speaking of an experience here, it's speaking of an event, namely what went on on Golgotha. It is magnifying this event, not an experience. And that event, once again, is the atoning work of Christ. You see, the verb points to the very redemptive act of Christ when He loved us and gave Himself for us. This is important. Listen, we can talk about the experiential love of God being poured out, but we must not forget the historical, biblical account of when God demonstrated His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. Meditating, watch now, upon Calvary's love affords us great confidence to face trials. Meditating. <clears throat> The Bible talks about disciplining yourself unto godliness. And lazy people have a difficult time attaining assurance. We have got to rediscover, delve into, and continuously subject ourselves to the discipline of meditation. Because listen, men and women... The more, whether you're a theologian, whether you're someone that has a great grasp on theology, you're astute when it comes to doctrine, or whether you're just a common layman, or you're a housewife, or whatever. When I say common, no one's common. But you say, I just have a basic understanding. Listen, this is something that is for all. 
but to experience the life-giving benefit of Calvary's love in your life, you've got to be diligent in studying the gospel. Plumbing, as Spurgeon said, plumbing the depths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you say, well, I'm extremely busy. I've got little toddlers around me. Only take five minutes a day or ten minutes a day to contemplate the beauties of the cross. Because as you do, all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit comes in His dynamic indwelling power and He increasingly conforms you to the image of Christ. And when storms come into your life, not only do you have the capability of weathering those storms, but you also learn that there is power there to rejoice in them. Rejoice in them. Yes. This is important. This is the essence of the message. Another matter, please don't miss, is that it's essential to point out that how we are more than conquerors. Have you thought about it? More than conquerors? I mean, how does it get any better than being a conqueror? But yet, listen, we put on full display after we've come from the battlefield on our war belt, we have our spoils. Not to call attention to ourselves, but we might show forth the works of righteousness of Him that has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. More than conquerors. You see, while forgiveness of sins is the greatest of Calvary's benefits, there are other blessings to be had. Let me mention a few here. First of all, we're more than conquerors in the sense that we do not simply best our rivals, whether it's our guilt or whether it's the accusations of the evil one, but we continue to be saved until our glorification is complete. You see, in a very real sense, brothers and sisters, the words of Christ in John 13 are just as relevant for us in this modern era as they were when Christ sat around the table with His disciples. And John says that He loved His own even unto the end. There's been no disruption, no divorce of love in your life. You have no idea just how much He loves you. Oh, how He loves you and me. Oh, how He loves you and me. He gave His life. What more could He give? Oh, how He loves you and me. And you know, without any exaggeration, it's not to embellish a sermon here, but my favorite hymn, Jesus loves me, this I know. What's more than the Bible that tells me so is the indwelling Spirit. Little, little ones. I'm a pretty good sized fellow, you know, but I'm still a little one. I qualify. To Him belong. They are weak. I'm very weak. I'm praying for weakness. But He is strong. Greatest hymn that's ever been written by a lady up in New York who crossed the Jordan, the, excuse me, the, the Hudson River to go and minister to the cadets at West Point. Written by this woman. Jesus loves me, this I know. Listen to this. Another benefit of being more than conqueror is that by virtue of Christ pleading at the throne of God on our behalf, we are enabled to persevere. Persevere. You see, in a very definite sense, this magnifies the word more, more than conquerors. And once again, if I could cite our precious brother's comments, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said, Christ died for the church, not simply that she should be forgiven, but that she should arrive at this absolute perfection. It's a done deal. So you're going to try to intimidate me? 
You're going to magnify the guilt? Listen, I'm aware of my guilt. It doesn't go completely away. But all it does is it serves as an opportunity to drive me to Calvary and to bask in the glory of the One who loved me and gave Himself for me. Amen. Yes. Mrs. Charles Cowan, by the way, I don't know if you have that devotional or not, Streams in the Desert. She quotes Spurgeon all through it, you know. Pretty solid. She said this about being more than conquerors. The gospel is so arranged and the gift of God is so great that you may take the very enemies that fight against you and make them steps. Listen, make them steps to the very gates of heaven and into the presence of God. And then she goes on to say this, as if she needed to add anything. Just had my birthday, you know, my wife, she fixed me my favorite birthday dessert, and that is German chocolate cake. This is icing on the cake, friend. I can't imagine my German chocolate cake without icing. But here's the icing on the cake. She continues and she says, To be more than a conqueror is to take the spoils from the enemy and appropriate them to yourself. What he had arranged for your overthrow, take and appropriate for yourself. I remember, I don't know if you've ever read the book, The Calvary Road by Roheshin. It wasn't a Calvinist. I'm so glad today that Calvinists don't have a monopoly on the kingdom of God. But Roy wrote and told the story about this young female missionary. She's full of zeal and passion. She went to the mission field. She started serving. All of a sudden, her expectations were dashed. She was very discouraged. She walked for a number of days in great depression almost debilitating. And one morning she's on a pathway to her location where she's going and she's met with a young convert, a young female convert who'd just come to Christ. And the young convert asked her, said, how are you today? And she said, well, to be honest, I've been very discouraged. Things haven't gone the way I'd anticipated. And I'm thinking about going home, just returning home. And the young convert looked at this woman and said, Has the blood of Jesus lost its power? That's what I would ask you this afternoon. If you're troubled and fragmented and, and you're hurting deeply today, has the love of Jesus lost its power? We don't simply endure, brothers and sisters. But we enjoy our conquest. It is important that we remember that trials are ordained to cause us to think upon promised glory. As Paul put it, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. You have no idea. So then a third and final point. Think with me for a moment on the inseparability of Christ's love. It's what he says in Romans 8, verses 38 and 39. For I'm sure, absolutely confident, emphatic emphasis, I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That shouldn't bore us for me to read that again. That's our victory cry. Now how was Paul confident when he said, For I am sure or I am persuaded. What made such a man, hey, get a look at this, a man of like passions as you and I? Like passions, propensities, glitches, idiosyncrasies, battling with the flesh. What would make a man of like passions as we are so certain that no entity could thwart his relationship with God? Listen, this is good. I have absolutely no doubt that what was behind his confidence 
was this sense of God's love. He knew it objectively, he knew it theologically, but I tell you, friend, it had filtered down into his very faculty of sensibility. He was gripped with it. Being well acquainted with the love of God made Paul invincible against any entity during times of adversity. And how did he become so familiar with it? Listen to this. First, by divine revelation. Three years, he's tutored by God himself on the backside of a desert. Obviously, that's something that was exclusively reserved for him by way of providence. But God groomed him. God taught him. Secondly, though, I believe that Paul experientially knew the outpouring of the love of God as set forth in Romans 5.5 that we talked about last night. You remember that he said that God's love had been poured out into their hearts by the Holy Spirit. And considering the supernatural impact of that experience, friend, and you don't get over it. Not all Christians have experienced it. Some at regeneration, some during crisis times of their life, some as a result of cravings. Stop here and share this with you. I only had one experience of this, Brother Scott, of the love of God being poured out of my heart by the Holy Spirit just the night after my conversion in an all-night prayer meeting. I was so hungry for God. I knew nothing. But in talking to our brother Paul, he's had multiple experiences of this. <clears throat> so I asked him one day, I said, why is it, brother? I said, this juncture of my ministry, my life right now, I'm not seeing people come to Christ. It bothers me. I don't, I don't see people come to Jesus. I'm hearing of how people are helped through the messages or counsel, but I want so much more. And I said, why is it I'm not seeing that? You know what he said to me? Maybe you become too civilized. Got all the answers, don't you? You answer it from the Greek and from the Hebrew, and you can articulate with precision your theology. The only thing that you're deficient in is the love of God. And then he says, He always comes. It's just that we don't stay in the place of yearning and desperation and continue to seek until He comes. And then one more thing. Let me add this as another source of Paul's confidence in God's love. It also came from his personal experience. You see, the apostles saw the resilience it produced. And therefore he could say, boldly, he declared, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from this love. You see, it had personally, he had personally encountered the hope, courage, and joy, brothers and sisters, of the love of Christ that it would produce. And this love enabled him to weather every privation and persecution in his life. So with all this said this afternoon, I wrap things up with this. Think about it. In a world of fear and chaos, the evangelical church would do well to revamp her theology. What? Revamp our theology? Just go back. Not because there's anything wrong with it as far as something that may be erroneous, but rather to familiarize yourself with the simplicity of it once again, because while it comes across as very simple to you, it's very profound in affording you a greater, more tangible sense of the presence and glory of God. How can modern believers know anything of the life-changing comfort of the love of God unless, first of all, they understand it? And from a vantage point of familiarity, think about this. With God's love, He states that there is no entity 
that rocked his world. Every threat to his trust in God had been overcome through the love of God in Christ. And I'll not take the time to go through every one of these things, death and life, etc. But listen, let me make a comment about death. The Apostle Paul knew death as a deliverer, not as a destroyer. To be absent from the body would be to be present with the Lord. It didn't wipe out his very existence, friend. It didn't dash his hopes. All it would do is usher in profound glory. Once again, as Mr. Jones, as in Martin Lloyd said, death itself becomes something that ministers to our glory. Is he going to take my life? From the one who said he is the resurrection and the life? From the one who said in John 8 and verse 51, He that keepeth my saying, he shall never taste death. Do you understand, friend? As a saint, you're not going to die. You're going to transition into glory. Even the rich man, you remember, and Lazarus. It says when Lazarus was dying, literally the Greek is he was dying. He was transitioning into glory. So just that quick, you're in the presence of Christ. And it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Let's stop there. Let's pray together. Father, I know that this is a lot to perhaps assimilate for some, but I I would pray that by Your Spirit You would point to those things, Lord, that would be most applicable and most helpful. Lord, help us not to underestimate the power of the gospel in sanctification and that magnificent theme of the love of God in Christ in the gospel. And teach us, O God, once again, not only to know the sustaining power of that love, but also, Lord, to be able to rejoice in our afflictions, in our sufferings, Teach us the importance of meditation. To not be content with just reading the Bible, but taking the time to fixate our mind upon it in such a way, Lord, that we literally squeeze the juice, the life-giving sustenance from it. Show us Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.